Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association or JOMA podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and proud JOMA member. And today I'm really, really honored and really, really excited to be interviewing Rabbi Dr. Barry Eichenbaum. Before I go into his bio, I'm going to say, as I've been doing a lot lately, um, please reach out to us at health, H-E-A-L-T-H at JOMA, J-O-W-M-A dot org. If you have topics you want to hear, comments, um, concerns about the podcast I've done already, you want to be interviewed, any of those and all of those, please reach out to us on health at joma.org. So Rabbi Dr. Eichenbaum completed his PsyD in clinical psychology from the Furkhoff Graduate School of Yeshiva University. He also received smicha from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University. Rabbi Dr. Eichenbaum has extensive experience in providing exposure and response prevention ERP therapy for obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, in which he was trained under nationally renowned psychologist, Dr. Stephen Philipson. He is also trained in sex therapy and Gottman method couples therapy. His areas of clinical focus are in OCD, anxiety, sexual dysfunction, compulsive sexual behaviors, and relationship difficulties. He currently works at Blue Anchor Psychology, a private group psychotherapy practice based in Manhattan. That website to reach him is Blue Anchor Psychology, B-L-U-E, Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, psychology.com. Hi, Rabbi Dr. Eichenbaum. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to do this important topic, one that I have over a hundred episodes later, somehow not covered. So it's important. And I want to start with what is OCD? Because I think that everybody goes around saying, oh, I'm so obsessive. I'm so obsessed with this. Oh, I have OCD, my OCD, da, 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 which is not really what we're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. OCD is like one of those terms that people kind of just throw around, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, clinically, but if we're taking a clinical perspective, so we have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, you have two major components, like you see in the name, you have the obsessions, and those are, those can be intrusive thoughts, images, urges, feelings that a person has, they experience them as unwanted, um, cause distress, often it's anxiety, but it can be another type of emotion, guilt, shame. So you have those obsessions, and then you have the compulsions, the compulsions are the way that a person attempts to manage those sessions. There are ways that a person tries to neutralize those thoughts, feelings, urges, tries to get rid of them in their own way. Um, and oftentimes in the short term, it works to some extent. Uh, the problem is that OCD maintains itself and continue, they continue, those thoughts, those urges continue to come back again and again and again. Um, so that really is the clinical term. But of course, you, know, you see in society, people will throw it around. People mm-hmm. are very clever very into being clean, neat, organized, you know, those people may or may not have OCD, but we sort of use that term, you know, pretty loosely. Right. Would you say that it's something on a spectrum? Absolutely. You know, OCD, there are certain criteria you have to meet to actually be diagnosed with OCD. But of course, there are so many people that could meet subclinical criteria, right? You mm-hmm. know, it's really about, 
I would say the major thing is that is this, are these obsessions, are these compulsions causing distress and are they impairing your life? You know, there could be a stress spectrum, but those are the really ways we look at it in terms of how it's impacting your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, yes, I think that function is really the bottom line, right? Where it's impacting your function, impacting your daily life. So I, I think that that's important. What are some common obsessions and compulsions? So, you know, it's interesting with OCD, you know, we um, actually can really manifest, manifest itself in almost anything you can think of, right? Mm -hmm. um, part of the, one of the core ideas of OCD is that it feeds on uncertainty. And there's so many things in life, right, we can be uncertain about. So oh, some boy. of the common areas, yeah, some of the common areas you have are in terms of, let's say, the, 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 pro, the stereotypical one is the cleanliness, right? People mm -hmm. who are washing their hands, not, you know, hundreds of times a day, right? That idea um, feeds on concerns of being contaminated, of getting sick, of becoming ill, of feeling dirty, right? You also have OCD in relation to feel harm. Person may have intrusive thought. They have a thought, oh, I could harm this person. I could kill this person. And, you know, studies have shown that many people have these type of intrusive thoughts. Someone with OCD will take that really seriously and worry that they could act on it. Um, so you'll have that. You'll have people who have thoughts of harm coming to themselves. They have a thought, you know, I could hurt myself. You have this in relation to relationships as well. A person's in a relationship, they have this thought, it's uncertain, you know, you know, I think I like this person, but is this really the right one? Are they, maybe I'm making the wrong choice, right? You have it manifesting itself there. Really just about anything, especially religion, a person has thoughts and doubts about their religious practice or the beliefs. OCD really feeds onto any area you can think of um, and causes that distress. Absolutely. And I'm still thinking, you know, you mentioned religious, you know, types of OCD, which you had told me was called scrupulosity. Yes. I want to talk more about that. Um, and I want to hear from you again, how you, how people distinguish what's normal and what's not. Absolutely. You know, so that if you look at someone who is doing it, has a, let's say ritualizing religiously, if you just look externally at a person and know nothing else, you really can't tell so well, right? Because what we have to look at is the context and internally what's going on. So there are a couple of ways we sort of try to parse that out. We look at number one, what is the community norm? You know, whatever community, religious community they're living in, what are other people doing? What are most people doing? Is this considered to be sort of atypical behavior in that community? That's number one. And, you know, any of these criteria that I'm talking about, they by themselves are not enough to rule, to distinguish whether it's OCD or not. There's sort of clues we have. We look at that. We look at what's the motivation of the behavior. Is it being motivated because a person's desire to fulfill um, law or is it being motivated by anxiety and distress that a person is carrying out the rituals they're observing the religion in a way that is based on just getting rid of the anxiety they have if, that they feel they're not doing correctly you have that you also look at you know functional impairment right is it impairing it, their life and is it impairing the religious observance you may have a person who has those about religion in a specific area but they it because of that overwhelming anxiety they're not able to perform other religious rituals and it's really impairing their entire religious life so those are some of the questions we look at, you know, sort of sort of get a better understanding of whether this is a person who is, you know, may, maybe being very strict and very, very careful about their religious law, or is it really more of OCD? Right, because it can look from the outside like, oh my gosh, that person is so from, right? Absolutely. They, they have such, you're Hashem, they have such Oh Hashem, right? That, that they're doing this, but really it's not coming from a healthy place. I'm going to give an example for you because we recently had a mental health um, program in my shul. And actually the rabbi told this story. He said there was a young man who was spending hours every day adjusting his tefillin. He could not leave the davening because it was never quite right. 
And I'm going to leave this for later. What they said was the treatment. I really want your opinion on this because what they were talking about was why you need to have a culturally competent um, therapist for this, because you could have somebody who's completely normal within the context of their communal norms, right? Where it might be normal to do something, not that particular thing, um, but this clearly was not by any, any community normal. And what they told him was, the therapist told him was, you have to stop putting on tefillin. Not permanently, but for a period of time. I wanna get back to that later, what you think about that, because I was wondering whether that would really help or not. Um, but what that rabbi was talking about was, was they went to the rabbi and the rabbi went through it with the therapist and decided for this particular case that he that was part of his therapy and he needed to do that. We can get back to that later. Sure, sure, I, I have a couple of thoughts ready. You want to um, go for it now? We'll get back. We'll go later because yeah. <laughs> we, we need to go to to, to, to um, how we treat OCD. But I want to talk okay. more about yeah. You go to that now, or let you want to save it for that. later. Then we have the context to talk about that later. Absolutely. We'll save it for later. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Perfect. So I want to talk about um, what we in the medical field call comorbidities. Right. That that OCD is not necessarily seen in isolation. Correct. Absolutely. You know, the, the rule rather than the exception is that people see typically have other co-occurring mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. um, you have people, especially in anxiety, there are other types of anxiety disorders, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder that could be comorbid with um, OCD, depression as well. Major depressive disorders is definitely another uh, disorder that has a strong comorbidity. Um, but really, yeah, when you're dealing with OCD, you really have to consider how other mental health conditions can even impact the treatment and, and how it's manifesting itself in the person. Absolutely. You also did not mention tick, tick disorders. It wasn't on our list to talk about, but, but that does um, exist along with OCD in a certain percentage of cases. Absolutely. There's a comorbidity there, right? And, you know, sometimes it's not always easy to know, is it a tick disorder? Is it right. OCD? Because sometimes a compulsion could look like a tick. And, and or it is a tick, but really part of that parsing apart the difference is understanding why the, the person is engaging that behavior. You know, to be very very general, if the tick disorder is more about sort of sensations that are uncomfortable, and the person does the tick, uh, vocal tick or motor tick to reduce the tension. And then with OC, it's more of like there's an internal thought, it's a cognitive process, a thought or emotion that's distressing. The person thinks that by doing that type of tick, they're going to reduce their anxiety. Right. That's a good explanation. Okay, so which, who is more vulnerable to getting OCD? So we, we do know that, um, I, I believe the research says that women have slightly more incidence of OCD, um, but also we know that it starts off in, in childhood oftentimes. You know, you have children, um, even below the age of 10, will start manifesting OCD symptom, symptoms. Um, generally, OCD though, does start earlier in life. It's, it's, it's pretty rare to see OCD starting, you know, in a person's 30s. Um, mm -hmm. So we have it, but really OCD affects any person, all cultures, all religions. Um, right. Does it run in families? Is it there a genetic component to it? Absolutely. Like, you yeah. know, OCD, like other, a lot of mental health conditions, there's definitely a genetic component. Of course, you know, it doesn't mean if you have that, if you have a family member who has it, that means you're, you know, you're, you're going to have it definitely, but there is definitely a slightly more elevated chance you would develop it given the genetic link. Right, I mean, as a pediatrician, I see this all the time where the parent says, I know my kid has this because I have this, right? Right, so it, yeah, it's definitely, I think what's important is what could be helpful, you know, we obviously doesn't mean the person's gonna have it, but that's helpful to sort of look be on the lookout earlier on. You know, if you know that this is something that you runs in the family, 
um, maybe be on the, we can be more on the lookout earlier in life for kids to see if they're developing that and sort of address it sooner than later. Well, exactly. Address it sooner than later. And we are going to get to that because that is really important. But what I see as a pediatrician is sometimes instead of it helping, it hurts because the parent's anxiety affects how the child is treated. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you can, because part of it, you know, we know there's the genetic component, but there's, there, we don't necessarily know why one person will develop OCD. You know, there's not a clear, like we have theories. One idea could be that they see a family member develop, you know, demonstrating those traits and they may have a predisposition as well. So, right, like if a parent has OCD, they may act in a way that, that, that reinforces this type of behavior of obsessive thoughts and compulsions. The child may see that and sort of learn from that. Um, of course, it doesn't mean the person, the child will develop OCD, but of course that could be something that could be a trigger when they're growing up in a home, perhaps where that is more how, how things are. Right. Especially if they didn't get the proper treatment when they were a child and then the pattern repeats. Right. Absolutely. Right. Sort of people may have the condition where they know they have it or they don't know they have it, but they're sort of trying to get by with it, but not getting the treatment. And then, yeah, it definitely can in some cases spill over to the children. Right. I want to talk about an article that you wrote that I'm going to post the link for. There were two pieces. One had a link within the first article and you called it irrelevance. And I wonder if you could explain what you mean by irrelevance in the relationship to OCD. Sure. So, you know, one of the ways that, that we like to look, look at OCD is that, like I was saying before, many people have intrusive thoughts that thoughts like, hey, they don't, don't really sit with who they feel they are as a person. But the difference between a person with OCD and not, this person with OCD will be able to sort of feel that, say, oh, that's interesting, and then sort of brush it off and go about their life. With a person with OCD, though, they, the fact that they even have that thought, they treat it so seriously, they give it a lot of relevance. They're like, wait, why did I have that thought? What does that mean about me? What will I do because of that thought? And they give relevance, and their actions display relevance as well. They'll act in a way. So if a person has a fear, you know, they have an intrusive thought, um, that they might stab their child, right? So they're gonna maybe, people with OCD may stop, uh, may avoid being around knives, get knives out of their house. They're gonna treat that thought with so much relevance. The fact that they had that thought that came in their brain, they're gonna say, maybe I would act on it and they'll give a lot of relevance to it. So that is what is driving the OCD, the relevance that people give to these intrusive thoughts. The way the treatment to go against that is creating irrelevance and that is, saying, and it goes both cognitively and behaviorally, you say to yourself cognitively, you know, I'm not going to treat this as serious, even though it seems so urgent, it seems so distressing that this thought I have to deal with the thought, I'm going to treat it as if it's not relevant, even though I feel it is, and behaviorally to act in a way that displays relevance. So you're going to, in the case we had before, a person might go out of their way to carry a knife around with them throughout the day, even though their brain says, hey, you might stab someone, you're going to show irrelevance, I thought, and say, hey, I'm not treating you seriously because, and look at me, I'm actually going to go around with a knife in my hand. Wow. I want to go back to the beginning of that because I think that we're going to get to the whole treatment of OCD. I think we can go into there now, but I want to start with what happens when you don't treat it, the concept of how neurons that wire together fire together. Did I say that right? Sure. That, yeah. In other words, the concept of getting into this, you're reinforcing by yeah. what you do or don't do. So if you could explain what, what happens when you don't treat this. Yes, yeah, so absolutely. So, you know, using that model before, right? So you have, it often starts off, any new OCD will start off more innocently. You know, there's like this intrusive thought and a person starts to wonder, hey, that's interesting. Let me think about that thought a little more. Let me, let me delve into that, you know? And then of course that creates relevance. Person, after doing that, makes the thought very serious. They, they, they feel that the thought is serious. They treat it as relevant. And then they, what they do is they act 
continuously in a way that reinforces the relevance. They act in a way as if this thought is, is such an important thought that it's a crisis, they must deal with it. And we know through the principles of learning and behaviorism, what that does is continuously reinforce the neural connection that whenever I have this thought, I have to treat this as really serious. I have to not only think that it's serious, I have to act that it's serious. And again and again, through compulsions, through avoidance of certain situations that might trigger the thought, through asking for reassurance from people when we feel we're not sure, that again, reinforces this, this relevance we're giving to this thought and creates, strengthens that neural connection. But I want to go back a little bit to why the compulsions, what, what the point of these compulsions are in this situation. So the compulsions are really a, 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 an attempt the person does to reduce the thoughts, try to sort of get the thought away or to the anxiety, right? So let's take the example we had before. If a person has that intrusive thought that they might harm someone, so if, they, if their compulsion is to sort of avoid any areas where they can harm someone, you know, get all sharp objects out of their, out of their house, they're sort of in, temporarily trying to reassure themselves that they won't harm, harm someone because they can't, right? So temporarily, they're getting rid of that distress because they're making themselves feel that they would never act on that intrusive thought. But of course, that is sort of just a temporary measure because then the brain will come up with a new thing that they have to be worried about. Um, and, right. And right, just back to the irrelevance. If you just started with saying, wait a second, this, this thought made no sense at all. So why not just talk them out of it? So that's the thing, right? So there's some, there, we know that OCD is really an emotional disorder, right? It's not a rational disorder. And many, almost m- many, many people with OCD realize that this sort of doesn't make sense, right? They have this insight that, you know, I have this thought and I'm bothered by it, but I don't think it makes sense. But the thing is that they don't have another way unless, without treatment. They don't know another way to deal with it, right? Emotionally, their, their brain is saying, hey, deal with this, deal with this, get away from this. This is important. Even if they're more rational part of the brain is saying, no, you don't need to do with it, but they don't know how to get rid of the stress. There's such an intense distress that's accompanying these thoughts. And they do see, the thing is, you see that if you do a compulsion, you will get rid of, generally get rid of some of the stress. So that's their coping mechanism. That's what they're doing. That's how they know how to function. Um, and that's the way people go again. But the same thing, as we said, it sort of reinforces it again, that these thoughts will come up again and again and again, but it really comes from a place of an emotional distress that they're seeking to try to navigate. Right. So it's not an intellectual thing, because what would happen if you tried to treat it in an intellectual fashion? What would happen? Absolutely. So if you did that, so we going back to what we said before, you would be creating more relevance. Like, let's say you have. So first of all, what probably wouldn't work or would work only short term. Let's say you sort of try to outsmart that and you try to say, hey, you, you would never do this. You've never hurt someone before. You know, you never would do this. You know, it could work. A good person might feel reassured. And, oh, OK, fine. But what you're doing is showing relevance to that thought you're saying whenever you have that thought the only way you can cope is you need to sort of try to outsmart it right which mean but and if it was only that thought maybe it'd be fun but what ocd does is creates new thoughts and new new situations and gives you another and and the next time the person will say hey what about this maybe you wouldn't use this object to hurt someone maybe you use this object or maybe the oc will go to another area of your life and focus another aspect of your life so if you use that approach you're sort of reinforcing relevance that the only way you can deal with the sweat is not to experience the distress, but to sort of try to avoid it by rationalizing. You really don't learn irrelevance. And that's why you'll see that these thoughts will continue to come up again and again. Right, exactly. I also want to talk a little bit about uncertainty because my understanding is uncertainty is that the intolerance of uncertainty is a root issue here. Absolutely. So we all have uncertainty, right? Every person has uncertainty, you know, whether it's about some degree of uncertainty about our health, 
Um, it's about our, our safety, about our uh, about what's going on in our family. We have about our religion. We have all sources of our relationships, right? There, there's uncertainty in everything. So what people with that OCD, it can be distressed and people don't like to be uncertain. They like to have as much clarity as they can. But people with that OCD will sort of be able to accept that there's going to be some uncertainty, some level of risk that can't prevent every feared outcome and live with it, with that uncertainty. With people with OCD though, there's such a, whenever they enter uncertain territory, it's very, very distressing. It's very hard. And the only way that they know or, or have worked for them to deal with the uncertainty is to do a compulsion is to, or is to avoid the situation. But it's really the intolerance, like you said, the intolerance of uncertainty, not being able to be in an uncertain state, which often for much of OSD is the driving force behind. Right, right which is why logic doesn't work, right? Because you can't yes. have 100% certainty. And if you try to do it logically, you will be going down that rabbit hole. Absolutely, right? Because, you know, you take a person who has a fear of, let's say, crossing the street. So they, they say, you know, I'm going to look both ways, but what, what if there's a possibility that I don't see a car coming and get hit by a car, right? So you might be able to say, okay, well, the chances are so low, right? But there's still a chance, right? We can't get rid of zero. And, if, and there's still going to be uncertainty. So even if you go that direction, maybe temporarily feel, personally feel better. It's, if it's OCD, the person will not, they won't resolve it because again, you've not, you've still shown the person, the person's still dealing with the uncertainty. They haven't been able to cope with uncertainty. All we're doing is trying to make them feel a little bit less uncertain, but the core issue of uncertainty hasn't been addressed. Wait, so now I'm ready to go talk about the treatment. Because sure. right. <laughs> you would say the treatment means gradually becoming more uncom more comfortable with that uncertainty, right? With the discomfort Absolutely. that uncertainty causes, would that be accurate? Yes, yes, it's the uncertainty. So, right, there's two parts. There's the cognitive part of like in, being in a situation where you, there's uncertainty there and then feeling the emotions that accompany the uncertainty. Oftentimes there's an anxiety to be in uncertain space, but there could be other emotions, right? Um, and that's what the, the treatment we use for that is we call ERP, exposure and response prevention, where you go and you expose the person. It could be gradual, but you expose the individual with OCD to progressively more increasing levels of uncertainty or distress so that they learn that they can be with uncertainty, right? They don't have to resort to a compulsion to get rid of the uncertainty. They don't have to resort to avoidance or reassurance. They don't have to resort to using their like cognitive, trying to outsmart themselves. They can be uncertain and live that way. And of course, it's very distressing at first because this is something they're desperately trying to avoid. But over time, the more a person shows them, they're, they're showing themselves that, hey, I can live with uncertainty. I can function. I can get by. And what you oftentimes find is the more a person displays that irrelevance to the thoughts and lives in uncertainty, the more of our time those thoughts become less distressing, less frequent, and they find that their life has really opened up in a way that wasn't before. Right. And this is going to sound super obvious to you and to most people, but I'm going to say it anyway. This isn't something you can just do on your own. So it's difficult to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you, know, you might be able to take these principles and, and sort of say, okay, hey, where can I in my life just um, experience uncertainty? The thing is, OC is very tricky. Because as we were saying, the shift, the thoughts can shift very often. What a person thinks and avoidance is very hard to detect when you're, you know, on your own. Of course, we're biased. A person that we see, they have a lot of distress. They may sort of do, try to do very, very, take very, very minimal risk, or they may even do an exposure, what we call, you know, this type of process and still engage in reassurance. Like they might say, okay, I'm in this situation, but nothing bad's gonna happen, I'm okay, right? So it's it's difficult to do it on your own because you don't have a perspective of a third party looking on and and, and seeing, is there any avoidance going on? Is there any reassurance going on? Um, so that's why, you know, it's definitely recommended to have someone else, like a therapist to help you in that process. 
Right. And I'm going to, you know, put a plug for parents getting help for themselves if it's their children. Cause as a pediatrician, I do see this, like say a child who's afraid of getting a shot and the parent says, mm, I think we'll come back a different day. <laughs> it's just too hard. Right. Um, as opposed to helping them get through it. And you know what, it's also a matter of degree though. Right. I mean, for some child, they may not be able, they may have such a severe fear that they may not be able to tolerate that experience. You may have to break it down over many steps. Absolutely. Right. Right. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's a cost benefit analysis. Like, right. There might be certain, like it, it, all, it depends, like you're saying the impairment and distress, like, you know, you might have, if, if a person theoretically had OCD in one specific area in their life and they just don't like that, that area causes stress, we might say, okay, just don't do that. Just avoid that area. Right. But usually the rule of OCD is that it's not limited to one area. It's, it, it's pervasive. Right. And really um, it could be for the, for a kid like that. Also, we, you'd have to see, but you might say that, yeah, we could, it might be on that specific day. We don't want to push the kid. We'll come back another day. Or you might say, this is really, this is something that's pervasive in their life. They're continually avoiding. They're continually not learning to deal with the stress. And we might say, okay, maybe this is appropriate to try to see if we can push the kid a little more in this situation to live with that distress, to see that it's okay that you can function with distress. But of course, yeah, it's, it's definitely a case by case um, decision. Right. But the, but the opposite way is to never allow your child to experience any distress is to feed the OCD. Right. And, you know, even if it's not OCD, I think it's a, it's a general principle, right? Right. Because right. We, like you see that we, uh, a lot of the society is very into sort of the quick fixes and sort of avoiding any discomfort um, and you, you can get by the way, but then you don't learn that you can deal with discomfort. And then we're, when any, when there's a major stressor in our life, a person doesn't feel they have the tools to deal with it because they've always used to trying avoiding to stress. But what we can do is sort of, you know, obviously within, within reason, help our kids, um, learn that they, you know what, there are certain things that are uncomfortable, but they can do it. They have the skills, they can get by, they can learn that it's okay. They can get through it. Um, and then you give this kid, you give the kids really this tremendous life skill mm -hmm. of being able to live with the stress. Oh, for sure. It's so empowering. Absolutely. What about the role of medication? I'm thinking about someone who is so, so disabled by these OCD that they can't even do this exposure response therapy. Absolutely. So, so medications is always something that we, we get out, you know, when you think about medication, um, you, you talk about two different types of medication that's typically used for OCD. You have um, SSRIs or antidepressants. They're medication typically prescribed for depression, like Zoloft, um, and those are medications that can be very helpful, you know, especially if a person has severe OCD and it's impairing their functioning, right. To sort of help lift them up a little bit, take the edge off of the OCD. Um, that could be very, very helpful. And then, you know, with sometimes combining that with the therapy can make them even better, even more better, right. Improving even more. Um, you have that type of medication. So definitely in, in, in certain cases, it definitely, you know, would encourage medication. You have another class of medication, um, where the benzodiazepines, you talk like clonopin, Xanax, those are medications that are really taken generally more as needed in the moment. So if a person is anxious or has an intrusive thought, a person who's using that medication might just go right for the medication. And if we're taking a ERP or exposure approach and, and trying to teach a person that they can live with anxiety and tolerate it, that sort of defeats that. That's sort of a way of a compulsion in a way. It's really teaching the person that the only way they're gonna get through this thought is that they have to take medication. So maybe in the short term, it does help them. But if we're talking about a long-term approach, uh, therapy approach to treatment, that is something that, that's discouraged, those types of medications. Right. Well, benzodiazepines um, taken on a regular basis is extremely, extremely um, problematic. And I did a whole episode um, with a physician who became dependent on them. And it's 
it's a very it's a very big problem that is not a long term solution. Um, thereby underscoring the need for doing something like ERP if you're capable of doing it. Um, but I also want to point out that medications are not a crutch. I hate when people say, oh, they just need it until they do their therapy and then then they should be good. And it's something that um, is the need for it or the use utility that could be minimized. Absolutely. I think that, it, yeah, if a person feels that medication is helpful, you know, if it's within and, and, and if we're doing the therapy and it's not going to contribute, go against the principle of therapy, I, certainly. I think that, you know, you want to do whatever is helpful for yourself. It doesn't, doesn't indicate a weakness at all, if you're saying. Right. Definitely right. encourage it. Right. But I love the line pills and skills, right? I mean, if you have enough, you know, capacity, whether on your own or with medication, then it would be really helpful to do this therapy, right? Right. And some people like, especially this whole therapy should be so helpful. People, if, if there's so the, if the level of, like, of stress is so severe, they won't even consider a possibility of doing an exposure and then you give them the medication. Right. So of course it's still hard, but then it's already in the realm of possibility that they would try it. Right. And even if they do combat the OCD symptoms with therapy, they may have ongoing anxiety that may need medication. May. Yeah. Yeah. It could be yeah. people that feel like this is the way, like, you know, they want to take it long term and, you know, yeah. and, and that's okay for those people. Absolutely. So I want to go back to the young man with the tefillin and let you talk about it. Now that we've talked about ERP, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the idea of the treatment for him would be to stop putting on tefillin for a period of time. Yeah. So, you know, just thinking about it first glance, it, it, I wouldn't have necessarily gone there because mm -hmm. if you're thinking about what, like going back to the idea of uncertainty. So, you know, we have to think about what this person is, what's, what, what's going on? Why is this person continually checking their tefillin? Is it that there's an uncertainty? It sounds like perhaps there's an uncertainty of whether the, it's on straight, right? Mm -hmm. Is it, is it not, is it not aligned? So they constantly are checking back. So what that would be uncertainty. There's a certain level of uncertainty. Am I observing the mitzvah correctly? Right. So, you know, it would seem that, Entirely getting rid of not wearing tefillin. Okay, you would help to, you know, you might short term help the person, the person not putting tefillin on, so they don't have to go through this whole doubt and uncertainty of how they're of, of observing the mitzvah properly. But you haven't given them a chance to learn anything new, right? You haven't. You, you've avoided them. it. In my mind, you've avoided avoidance. the whole problem Absolutely. for temporary. That's exactly. It's like it's avoid. It seems like avoidance, right? So I would have thought in that situation, what you might you know do is is not that, but have the person where it's feeling and you have to see, you know, progressively you might start, you have to see in terms of how much distress that they're willing to, to take. Right. But, you know, talking about things of wearing to fill in and not trying to reduce the checking either. Right. If, you, if no checking is possible, if a person needs to check, reducing, starting with reducing the, the time to check, maybe there's only a certain amount of times they can check their tone and the rest of the time they have to wear their tone with the doubt that maybe it's not correctly. Right. Or, things like that, or maybe sort of putting the tefillin on and touching it a little bit, slightly touching it, and then having the thought, maybe now it's not aligned properly, right? So those are things that when you do those things, you're really creating uncertainty. And you're teaching the person to live with uncertainty. The person who's not putting on the tefillin there, so then maybe I wonder if they're going to have OC about some other mitzvah there, and they haven't learned any skill and, and as to how to navigate that. And if they are able to do this with the tefillin in terms of reducing the checking or, or in this way, they're learning a skill that can take with any other area of the religious observance that might be affected by the OCD. Right. And eventually they were supposed to be putting the tefillin back on. It wasn't meant to be, well, you can never put on tefillin because it causes you uncertainty. Right. 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 And I think that, you know, it, it could be potentially in a very severe case if, if, if this person just can't function because they're putting tefillin, you know, I think that that makes sense, but sort of just like a, like a very, very temporary thing. But if I wouldn't see that as helping the long-term treatment at all. 
Right. Again, we, we don't know the details of this story. Right. It just it bothered me so much. And I'm also wondering, do we have more OCD in the religious world? Is there an increased risk of it or rate of it? I think, yeah, and I think that's a so there is a there is a misconception out there that, you know, religious people from people have more OCD. You know, there's it's actually been researched. There's research that has been done and showing that actually the the incidence of OCD in religious populations versus non-religious are about the same. Mm-hmm. No significant difference at all. Um, what you do see is that people who are religious and have OCD, there's more, it's more likely that they're going to be the ones having OCD w- within religion, right? right. Religion, that's their flavor. That's their flavor. That's their flavor because yeah. oftentimes what OCD attaches to, it does is it attach itself to the areas of our life that are important. So that for a religious person is an important area of their life. The OCD is likely, very likely actually to manifest itself in some way in their religious life, but it's not going to mean, it's not that religion causes the OCD. I know, but think about it. And I heard someone say this, that with other OC, you know, other obsessions and compulsions, it's not related to your greatest relationship of all, which is your relationship with Hashem. Right? I mean, what are you thinking? I'm thinking, I'm not doing what Hashem wants. I'm not doing what Hashem wants. That's very different than the other types. So it's particularly malignant in my mind. It can be, it can be more, it can potentially be more severe because it's sort of like the, we, you know, and, and as religious people, we, we are, we are taught to, to, to think, and we're supposed to think in that way, like, what does Hashem want? Am I doing, I observing halacha correctly? That is, that is a value we have. So a person might then say, okay, this is really, it, sometimes it's actually sometimes harder to know if it's OCD. A person might convince themselves that they don't have OCD. They may, this is really, I'm just trying to be very, very observant, keep halacha really, really properly. And I think in that way, sometimes it's harder because people don't always have the insight um, at first, at least, that what's going on is really OCD. Um, sometimes it might be easier to recognize this pattern in some other types of areas of their life, but um, religion is an area where sometimes it, people um, have a harder time seeing for what it really is. Yeah, and again, it underscores the um, awareness in both the um, clinicians, right, the therapists, to understand the role, right, of halacha and Jewish observance, which is normal, which is healthy, which is not, but also for all the rabbinim to know. Yes. Yeah, right. absolutely. You know, and um, there have been studies that have been done that, you know, show that most, most Shabbat do know, do understand when something's OCD versus something really isn't more, uh, quote unquote, let's say genuine question of Shiloh, right? They'll, they'll have an understanding. It, you, it, some of the ways that it can be done is if a person asks a question and keeps asking it again and again, right? right? Or sort of there's a urgency, there's an anxiety, ask the question, there's certain uh, clues. Um, a person might not, a rabbi might not know, you know from a one-time question what's going on, but if they get a flavor of the person, they're very, and, and the type of questions being asked, generally most rabbis are able to know whether it's an OCD question. And, and, you know, thankfully people, a lot of rabbis are aware of OCD and they know how to respond in a helpful way, actually. Right. You know what? I didn't ask you, but I'm going to ask you now for some um, good general resources. Um, I mean, I will give your website for your <laughs> practice. Um, just some general resources for people who are looking for more information or more help at this topic. I'm putting you on the spot. Sure. I didn't ask you this in advance. <laughs> sure. So, um, you know, a couple of things come to mind. So if we're talking more about general OCD, um, you have the IOCD Foundation, International OCD Foundation has a website, has a lot of information, videos that really are sort to educate people about the different, about OCD, the manifestations of it, how treatment works. Um, another, um, great site that I like is um, we call the, the OCD stories. So it's a podcast. 
Um, and it's a mix of people sharing their personal stories of OCD, how it affected them, how they dealt with it, how they navigated it, and experts coming onto the show and talking about OCD, all the different manifestations of OCD. Um, and I think that that's really helpful to people to feel like they're not alone and also to right. get a great, great information. Um, Right, right. And in terms in terms of getting help, there are some great organizations that can help point you in the right direction in the firm world. So there's relief, R-E-L-I-E-F dot org. There's Amudim, A-M-U-D-I-M, and there's MASK, just comes to mind, those three, M-A-S-K, um, of referral organizations that are, you know, very aware and sensitive to the intersection between religion and OCD. So I think that's yeah, so important. I, I, Absolutely. And we, there's so much awareness now, maybe not as much as it was in the past, but there was a lot of awareness, thankfully, about, about OCD and specifically OCD and religion and how to approach it in a way that is respectful of, the, of halacha and also is going to help the person get better. Absolutely. How long does it take to do this ERP? It's a good question. It's actually one of the questions that you often get when I'm starting with a new patient. You know, they want to get a sense, understandably, like what the process is like. So, you know, it is a hard question, though, to answer, you know, different, different studies have been done and say, some say that between 12 and 16 sessions of ERP, um, you can really see significant results. So I think that that makes, if you, if a person is sort of dedicated to the process, starting out right away, they're ready to go for ERP, they're sort of, you know, obviously it's hard work, but they're willing to go, go all out. I think that that number sounds about right about a person, how long it would take them to see significant results. Of course, um, understandably so, part of the treatment is sort of helping the person, helping motivate the person, educating the person, showing the person this is OCD, showing how it's impacting their life, helping gain motivation to do the work. And that could take more time. Like we talked about before, there could be comorbid mental health conditions that can make it can make it more complicated of how to approach it. So of course, treatment can last longer than that period of time. Um, so I don't, in that way, it definitely depends on the person. Uh, but one of the things I stress is the idea that, you know, we want to get to a place where you feel like you're, you're, you're really functioning and living the life you want, right? It doesn't mean OCD is going to go away from your life. You know, we don't necessarily have in a way to take it away and never come back, but to give a person the, the skills um, that they can be their own therapist eventually and, and realize that where OCD is coming up for them, having the skills to navigate and know how to, how to respond in a, in a therapeutically helpful way whenever OCD comes up in their life. Right. You, you alluded a little bit to the prognosis, which is my next question is, does this go away? So I think for most people, they're going to have some, the OCD in some form will exist throughout their life. You know, may have cases where it completely goes away, um, but in, in some form, but you, if person is going through the treatment, oftentimes it's in a form that's very, very manageable. It's in a way that they can, they may have flare ups from time to time. And, you know, if they want to, sometimes they, people will check in with their therapist every so often just to, just to, to help them in that moment. But it's something that if a person uses ERP and understands it and really applies it can be so helpful and really can, can they can really live that life that, that they really want to live. Um, right. and they and, won't have aired by mm-hmm. the OCD. They, do, yeah. they can part their vows. Um, maybe they're in the back and they're still always, it comes flares up, but they really can manage it really pretty well. Right. I mean, I think about thinking about it as a chronic condition that you can manage with, with skills, you know, and techniques and sometimes medication, I think is more helpful than thinking about something you're just gonna get rid of. Right. And, you know, sometimes people actually come into the therapy where they're like, I want to get rid of these thoughts. You want to just get rid of everything. And part of it is like, you know, you, what we're teaching the person is that you'll have, you probably will have these thoughts. They'll come up from time to time. Hopefully they'll significantly decrease through the therapy, but how do you, instead of saying, how do I get rid of them? How do the question more is how do I relate differently to them than I've been relating until now? How do I show irrelevance rather than relevance? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's really helpful. I also want your thoughts on 
whether you should be getting to a deeper root, right? I mean, we're looking at this in a very behavioral sense. Well, what caused it in the first place? Yeah, so I absolutely, you know, I think that if we are taking a behavior, according to the behavioral approach, you know, it isn't so important to know why it started. You know, sometimes we definitely want to hear about their childhood background, understanding how, how, when it started, the course of course, they'll see how it developed over time. That's very important to know. Um, but in terms of like why it's there, why did it happen to the person from a behavioral approach? Exactly. We aren't as concerned about that. We're concerned about now, how is it impacting your life? What's reinforcing it? How do we sort of break that cycle? Like we said, um, of course, there are other people that do take a more, uh, we might call a dynamic approach, psychodynamic approach, looking more at the origins and really understanding, you know, why, what is it about these types of obsessions that are so important to the person? Why is the person so preoccupied by this? Um, and there are therapists out there. I'm not as familiar, of course, that approach, but if you take a behavioral approach, we would actually say that that's, we want to shy away from that because that gives relevance to the thought, right? The more significance that we attach ah. to that thought sort of delving in and sort of, and people don't see do this already. They're like, they, they have a thought and they start, they start obsessing. Why am I having this thought? What does it mean about me? Why is this developing? People are doing that already. But from a behavioral approach, the more relevance and more we delve into it, the more relevance you give it, the more it's going to be, be a part of a person's life, the more they're going to treat it with relevance. That makes a lot of sense. But I was thinking of it from a different perspective. I was thinking of it from a more holistic perspective. Like, could there be trauma? Could there be medical problems? You know, I'm afraid to say the word pandas. <laughs> I didn't put that on my list either. <laughs> and you're an adult psychologist, so it's not fair. Um, I did do a talk on pandas too. Uh, um, th that's what I was talking about. And I'm thinking, okay, so, you know, you're right. If you spend so much time talking to the person, you're going to make it worse by giving it relevance instead of helping extinguish it. But say you've done the extinguishing part. Say you, you've gone through the behavioral route. What if there's something triggering it? It'll just keep coming up in different ways and you could find the root. Sure. I think that it definitely is possible. There, there may be cases where there, you may find a root. Like, right. I think that right behavioral approach, you don't want to start there. You want to sort of deal with make mm -hmm. a person. But yeah, of course there can be that sometimes there's a trauma there. Sometimes mm -hmm. OCD can manifest itself from a trauma. You mm -hmm. also have to sort of then figure out, is this more PTSD or is it OCD? But of course there could be, you know, we were talking before about why OCD develops. Sometimes there's a trauma. Sometimes a certain event happens in the person's life. Um, you know, maybe one time they, a person, their house was, uh, someone forgot, left the door unlocked and someone broke in their house and burglarized the house. And now from that time on, people are obsessed with checking their locks all the time. It could happen. So potentially, you know, it, it may or may not be helpful to, to, or important to know more about the trauma and how it impacts the person. But, it, but of course, yeah, there can be certain people where delving a little more in detail into why it happened, understanding it, and maybe even the manifestations of other places in their life, how it can impact, how it's manifesting can be helpful um, for those people. Right. I think it's also depends on, on the specific situation. Like say you have a relatively mild case, you do your ERP and you're fine. That's very different from someone who keeps having recurrences. Maybe your body is trying to tell you something or your mind slash body. So I think it really depends on the situation to be fair. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add? Cause I think this was really, really helpful, very concise, very clear. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I think it's an important topic and I'm really glad that that you did this with me. Anything else you want to add? Yeah, I would say that, you know, one of the questions that are often asked is that, you know, if we go, so we were talking before about religious OC or scrupulosity, mm -hmm. um, people are often interested to know whether the therapist has to be, uh, have, let's say we're talking oh. from a person, does the therapist have to be from too, right? Mm -hmm. So um, really, you know, 
The answer is that not, not necessarily, right? Because um, what, what, what's important for that, for people who are, who are seeking the treatment for OCD, if they have resuculosity, is that the therapist is, is conveying that, like we said before, it's not religion, it's, religion is not to blame for the OCD. OCD is just a manifest, it's just a manifestation the person has. And really a person who's, who's a, a, a therapist who is very culturally sensitive, wanting mm-hmm. to understand the person's culture is, is so important. Um, and also a person who is willing to consult with the rabbi, because there's, when you go through the exposure process for scrupulosity, you know, we're exposing the person to potent, to risk of sin, right? Right. And a person, of course, who doesn't know anything about halacha could recommend something, you know, even innocently, that could be a very blatant violation of halacha. And it's, it's important for that person, even if they're not from and they're not knowledgeable, to be able to consult the rabbi to understand the parameters of what's acceptable, what not, what's not acceptable. Um, and oftentimes when people have OCD, if the rabbi knows that this is a person with OCD, there's a lot of room for leniency to allow certain things, certain more riskier behavior that we normally would discourage a person from doing. So it's really important that the person is open to that, to that consultation when it's important. Right. That was the original point of the story with the young man with tefillin is that the rabbi was saying that in this particular case, the rabbi consulted, gave permission for him not to, whether or not that was the right thing, whether or not it helped him, we don't know. But the point that they made then was that you shouldn't assume you should consult with a rabbi. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Another yeah. thing. Comes, I'm sorry. No, no, go for it. <laughs> Another thing that comes to mind actually is, um, important thing that that's not always often discussed is you know when we talk about the compulsions that a person has there could be two types there could be more external compulsions that's like the classic the hand washing and then there could be the more internal because some people have oc and everything is going on in their head you don't even observe anything you might see them you may not see any different behavior that they're doing but it's all really in their head so a person might happen and you have this oftentimes with um person may have a thought that they think is a blasphemous thought you know, they think uh, a taboo thought. So you mm. might see that, you know, we call that more pure O, pure OCD, where it's more in the head. Mm-hmm. And the compulsions are really going on in their minds. So they have this thought and they tell themselves, no, I shouldn't, I don't believe in this thought. Or they're sort of say, a, they'll say a, a prayer, uh, they'll dive in that, that this thought should go away. Um, and they'll do all the sorts of things in their head that we, an obser- outside observer has no clue is going on. And people wonder, can you do ERP for that as well? And the answer is yes, because what we could do is expose the person internally to mm-hmm. those fears. Right. We can create a situation, maybe do an action even that creates this doubt in their mind. And through that, teach the person, help them stay with the doubt and stay with the uncertainty so they can face it, be with that distress and learn that they can tolerate that, even if it's something just in their head. Right. That's really, really important. I'm glad you added that. So I want to thank you so, so much for doing this with me today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You too. Have a good Shabbos. Okay. Good Shabbos. You too. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.